0: I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's a show and a podcast where readers meet writers, and it's good to have you listening. In Sophia Sinclair's childhood in Jamaica, Babylon was not some ancient or abstract place from the pages of the Old Testament. For her father, it was a burning, breathing wilderness where all that was wicked and impure existed. And as Sinclair would learn— Eventually, she would come to symbolize Babylon in her father's eyes. Sinclair writes in the prologue to her new memoir The more of this world I had discovered, the more I rejected the cage my father had built for me. Sophia Sinclair is a poet. Her award winning collection, Cannibal, was published in 2016. Her new memoir is titled, How to Say Babylon. And she joins us today from Phoenix, Arizona, at KJZZ. Sophia, welcome. It's good to have you on the show.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Your father's beliefs about the idea of Babylon were rooted, I guess, in a kind of moral code that comes from Rastafari. And and I want our listeners to understand and hear that this is not the Rastafarianism that many of us, I think, are familiar with. Can you explain it?
1: Um, Well, I do wonder what is the Rastafari that most are familiar with. I think when I sat down to write the book, I knew that um, most of sort of the global idea of Rastafari was quite narrow and often incorrect. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think most people think that Rastafari is the thing that defines Jamaica. Um, and it holds this broad space in the global and cultural imagination. But, you know, Rastafar and Jamaica are actually a persecuted minority. Um, and the movement was born out of um, this sort of anti-colonial desire to be free of colonialism and of the shackles of imperialism and for the black citizens of Jamaica to be free to be free to author their own lives. And so um, the movement was born from this very revolutionary place in the 1930s. Um, And so, you know, that's always been the roots of Rastafari. I think most people um, have this view of Rastafari. When they think of it, I think they think of reggae music Mm -hmm. or one particular, you know, reggae musician or... um, you know, that that's kind of their entryway into Rastafari. But um, in Jamaica, the movement and the Rastafari have been beyond reggae music, which for the Rastafari is their form of prayer um, and their way of spreading the message of Rastafari. But beyond that, um, the Rastafari have historically been social outcasts, pariahs, kicked out of their homes, turned away from their families, forbidden from getting jobs, forbidden from walking along the beach sides where um, that were being developed for tourists. Um, we had a prime minister in the 60s that gave a directive to the army that said, bring me all Rastas dead or alive. And this led to an awful weekend of terror where Rastafari were pulled out of their homes. They were jailed, tortured, forcibly shaved. Their, their hair forcibly cut, and an unknown number were killed. And so, you know, a, a lot of this um, isolation that the Rastafari felt and a lot of the struggle and strife that they went through from the very beginning of the movement led to this, um, I think, a kind of paranoia, a kind of seclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, and it's grounded in this idea that anything that is against the Rastaman man Anything that is of you know the Western world, Western ideology, capitalism, slavery, colonialism, racism, what Rastafari call ism and schism they they call that Babylon
0: you know I didn't realize until I read your memoir that Rastafari was also intertwined with a with a proud history in Africa that encompass the one-time emperor of Ethiopia, who actually at one point visited Jamaica. Do I have all of that right?
1: Yes, that's right. Um, Yes, so, you know, right at the beginning of the movement, Marcus Garvey, who is a Pan-Africanist revolutionary abolitionist, in one of his final speeches, he said, Look to Africa for the crowning of a black king, for he shall be the messiah. And a street preacher in Jamaica called Lena Percival Howell heard this speech that Garvey made around the same time that Haile Selassie was being coronated in Ethiopia mm-hmm. and in the 1930s. And at this time, Haile Selassie was the only black ruler in the world. And Ethiopia was the only African nation to never be colonized. And so Howell said he saw... Haile Selassie and said, this is the man, this is him, you know, in Haile Selassie, the Rastafari movement found, you know, an aspirational figure of of a black ruler in a nation that had never been shackled by colonialism. And the movement kind of hardened around the man, um, even though he himself was an Orthodox Christian, but he represented to them, you know, the as he was a black messiah. Um, he was, you know, descended from the Solomonic dynasty. And when he, he did visit Jamaica three decades after the founding of the Rastafari movement in 1966, he arrived. And I mean, it was, it was this great moment in Rastafari lore, right? When Haile Selassie arrives at the airport, every single Rastafari on the island crammed the airport in Kingston to see this man they believed to be God. And, um, you know, when when Haile Selassie finally stepped off the plane, at this time he was kind of a frail 74-year-old man. And he looked at more than 100,000 Rastafari in front of him, he wept. Um, but yeah, so the roots of Rastafari have always been grounded in, in sort of Pan-African mm. beliefs. In repatriation to Africa, in Black Pride, in um, the idea of unifying the entire African diaspora, um, I, and this all hardened around Haile Selassie himself. Yes.
0: Yeah, I don't want to miss something that you've just said here, though. But which I thought was really interesting was, as you noted, he was an Orthodox Christian. Rastafari, yes. Rastafari, is. Rastafari. Rastafari, thank you, diverges from Christian belief, doesn't it?
1: It does. (laughs) Um, I mean, I I think most Rastafari would say that it does. I mean, I'm not a religious scholar. I feel like I had to become almost a Rastafari scholar from scratch in writing the book. Mm -hmm. Um, There is no written word for Rastafari, so there really is no way to sit down and trace theologies. Um, but when Haile Selassie arrived in Jamaica, he did say to the Rastafari, I am not God, um, I am just a man. But to the Rastafari, only God himself would deny his divinity. So him saying that <laughs> only for them solidified their belief that he in fact was divine. Um, yeah, but I think the Rastafari... Um, see themselves as very much separate from any sort of Christian ideology. And in fact, they see Christianity as part of Babylon, Mm -hmm. even though a lot of their terms, Babylon itself, is a biblical one.
0: (laughs) Exactly. That was also kind of confusing. That comes right out of the Christian Bible.
1: Yep. Um, I think a lot of... Their rejections of Christianity come from, I think, the Westernization of Christianity and the King James Version of Mm -hmm. the Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that's what I was always told when I was growing up.
0: It's it's, uh, intriguing to hear you say, to write the memoir, you felt like you had to become a Rastafari expert in some ways. I mean, you grew up surrounded by the the orthodoxy of Rastafari, right? Because your father followed that. And yet to write the book, um, what, you felt like you you didn't know enough about, about the actual beliefs of it, or what did you have to learn to be able to to put this into the memoir?
1: I mean, I wouldn't even say there was an orthodoxy. I grew up Um, being told by my father, this were the, these were the rules. This is the way the world was, which is the way he saw it. And there was no other way to see it. Um, and I think in each Rastafari household, each Rasta brethren is the head of his own household and interprets the different tenets and livity. That's what they call it. Livity of Rastafari. Um, in their own way. Mm -hmm. And so there is no one united as I said before, no one united text, no one united sect, no one, you know, way of thinking about Rastafari. There's certain rules that I think are similar across the three different sects of Rastafari. Um, But my father never sat me down and said, here are the three different sects of Rastafari. And here are their three different rules. He was like, this is the rule.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And those mm-hmm. were his mm-hmm. interpretations from each sects of what he took. So my siblings and I were never really told why we did the things we did. We mm-hmm. were just told we had to do them Um because we had to be the purest vessels for Jah, which is what the Rastafari call Haile Selassie.
0: This, may, um, this might clarify for, for listeners, but you write that your father exerted a kind of all-knowing control over the household, and you put it this way. Living in a Rasta household was like being at a constant church, except the scripture was as variable as the sky. My father was both the god of the sea and the god of the sun— so when you say variable, did the rules change without warning? Was your father following some kind of internal moral code? How would you describe that?
1: Yes, I think he followed his own internal moral code. He was a very militant Rastafarian. He had his ideas about the world, how women should be, how men should be, what the world should be like and what parts of the world were evil, what parts of the world were Babylon. Um, sometimes that shifted, sometimes we never knew what was the thing that made him angry or what was the thing that um, you know went against his moral code. You know there are some things that are that were specific for example we had to eat a specific diet called ital which the rastafari eat which is um even more restrictive than a vegan diet you know it was it was like no meat no eggs no fish no dairy um but no salt no pepper no sugar you know there is there is like additional things it was very much like an mm-hmm. um way of living um you know everybody All Rastafari grow their dreadlocks, which is seen as a sacred marker of the Rastafari, a signal to the world that you are rooted in your Rastafari faith. Um, And then the, the other rules that were absolute were the ones put on the girls and the women. So my sisters and I were forbidden from wearing pants or shorts. We had to wear long skirts, long dresses that covered, you know, our our arms and our knees um we had to we couldn't wear jewelry we couldn't pierce our ears we couldn't wear makeup those were all seen as the vein trappings of babylon um, and there were some women in rastafari who had to cover their hair for a long time my mother wore a tie head to cover her hair mm-hmm. there were some women who were forbidden from um, being in the kitchen when they were menstruating um, and this is a different sect of Rastafari that, that followed mostly those beliefs. Um, but Rastafari men believed that women, some Rastafari brethren believed that women who are menstruating were unclean. And so, you know, there were some rules that, you, that were kind of similar across all different sects of Rastafari and some that were different. It just differed from, um, brethren to brethren. And a lot of the Rastafari wisdom itself was passed down from brethren to brethren just by, um, just orally passed down by what they call reasoning. So they would sit around in a drum circle and they would, you know, they would reason. It's kind of philosophical discussions they call reasoning. And then sometimes they would invite the young boys in and say, come, come and listen to this. Um, but women weren't ever invited into the reasoning. So a lot of, um the information about Rastafari was never passed down to me. I had to either do research for it for the book or call my father and my brother and ask them like, okay, <laughs> now I want to now I need to know because I'm writing the book.
0: You know, what you're describing shares I mean is a very fundamentalism fundamentalist philosophy and yet as you were describing the covering of the hair and the perception of being unclean, I mean, that's not all that different from fundamentalist beliefs in other religions. I mean, you'll find that, you know, in offshoots of Christianity and offshoots of Islam, um, it's, it's interesting that some of the tenets sound so familiar— to um, faiths that it sounds like the Rastafari disagreed with or disdained.
1: Yes, you know, I I cannot, (laughs) I can't explain that. Um, Except to say that I think most religions born out of an extreme patriarchal ideology um, have power structures that seek to you know, make some people powerless and some powerful. And it always so happens to be the women
0: Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) who are the ones that um, seem to be part of the powerless. Right. You know, the ones whose autonomies are controlled. Um, So by no means is Rastafari unique in that. I think anything taken to its extreme is never a good thing.
0: Um, I want to. I also want to note here that one of the ways that your father earned a living when he was in Jamaica and then he ended up uh, going abroad to also play music was he would play reggae music to Jamaican tourists, right? Many of whom were white Americans and white Europeans and they would come to stay at the fancy hotels in Jamaica, and yet your father, even as he was playing music, believed that these tourists were the personification, in some ways, of Babylon. Is that right?
1: I would say in some senses, yes. Um, You know, there were some, there were always some people that he met who were white tourists, who he thought were iry, but... Um, I think that this was something that weighed on him heavily, Um, or continues to weigh on him, because he still plays music in in the hotels in Jamaica. Oh, he does.
0: Um,
1: Yes. Hmm. Um, Because Rastafari had lost so much of his cultural agency in Jamaica by the 1980s, really, um, most of the time, the only way a Rastafari... Um, like my father who's who you know music for him is the only thing he's ever known um you know he's never you know he told us this when we were younger he's never, he was never going to be a banker or a or a taxi man you know Hmm. or a shopkeeper music for him was always his life and will continue to be his life so i think for him he just wanted to play his holy music wherever he could play it and if his message reached somebody, then he would feel like he did something righteous that day.
0: You used the word iry a minute ago. Um will you describe what that means?
1: Um it's a it's for the Rastafari, it means positive. Okay. You know, so my father will say if he's feeling good, he'll say, I'm feeling iry. If he thinks someone is like, you know, has good good energy, good vibes, he'll say they're iry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um and, you know, he doesn't say there's certain things like the Rastafari speak in a specific way, like he won't say he feels proud because Rasta don't feel proud. Like pride is not an emotion that they find to be righteous, so he'll say, I feel iry. Or you make me feel iry.
0: Yeah. Um What? why is is there another word for pride? Pride, or it is considered to be an emotion that is not worthy? Um, you know, I really
1: don't know that one. I never asked my dad, he just always said, Rasta, don't feel proud. I think you know, it's just one of those things where it's seen as, um, something tied to Babylon because Rastafari, to them, you should always be humble and vanity and pride were always bad.
0: Hmm.
1: And humility is what a Rastafari should strive for.
0: Has your father ever told you that he's proud of you and everything that you've accomplished?
1: Well, again, he would never say he's proud. <laughs> so, <laughs> but you know, he said, You know, the I make me feel iry, which is to (laughs) him, as close as he'll get to say, that's what he means, you know, that he's proud of my accomplishments.
0: Yeah. Uh, If you're tuned in to my Friday book show, Big Books and Bold Ideas, you're listening to a conversation with Sophia Sinclair about her new memoir, How to Say Babylon, one of my favorite books of the year I've recommended this memoir to many people. Please put it on your reading list it It is outstanding. Sophia is a poet, and um, she's joining us today from Phoenix. I want to ask you about um you know many Americans who uh again don't understand like I didn't until I read the the uh, memoir what Rastafari really is. I think they associate it with marijuana use. I, I, will you describe what your parents' view was of cannabis?
1: Um. <laughs> well, um. You know, to a lot of Rastafari, what they call it herb. You know, the herb is holy, and it's a way to open your mind to higher reasoning and higher heights. This is what my father, I've heard him say when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, so to them, it is part of their connectivity to the, to the earth and to the universe. And the Rastafari think a lot about the self, not as an individual spirit, but part as a collective spirit. So for the same reason that my father doesn't say me, he says I and I. Mm-hmm. Or the eye, um, because, you know, jazz spirit is always with the Rastaman. And so um, to them, uh, marijuana is part of um, that ritual practice of being one with the world, with the earth.
0: Although your father was not, it sounds like your father was not a frequent user of marijuana. No. But your mother was.
1: Yes, he was not. Um, I think he had a bad reaction when he was younger and just never smoked In when I was growing
0: up. But your mother did. Yes. And it sounds like at times that was the source of some tension between them. Is that right? No, I wouldn't say so. Okay.
1: You know, I think it was just part of... Her own sort of daily practice and however she dealt with the world?
0: Um, There's a place where you're writing about the education that you got and um, you write – I thought this was so – this was really beautiful. You write, while my father molded our view of the wicked world and its hidden history, my mother shaped our love of learning – and our sense of wonder. She, it sounds like, really uh, had great knowledge about the flora and the fauna of Jamaica and the way the natural world worked and and really instilled a sense of awe and wonder in you and your siblings about that. Would you talk a little bit about her view of the natural world and maybe how that has influenced your writing. But first, let's just talk about her view of it.
1: You know, my mother was born by the seaside, the same seaside I was born at. And so I think she was always connected to the landscape and to nature in a very deep way. Um, And she shared this love of nature with me and my siblings. And she would always take us on nature walks, and she would point out to me and my siblings the name of every plant, every insect, every flower, every tree, um, that she showed us how to make things grow, how to make things bloom. She showed us how to push our hands into the dirt. She taught me what I call the green language of poetry.
0: Yeah. Um, tell, tell us what that just is. Being, yeah.
1: Just having a love of... of the land that we live in and and to respect the earth in a in a way that, y- you know, is less of um, thinking about it as ownership or destruction, but as being one with it as being part of it. And I, you know, I found that so um, important to me when I when I started writing poetry, because I began writing poetry about nature about the you know the trees I loved the land I loved and that all came from my mother um, same similarly with the sea there is no idea no thought no line that I write without first thinking about the heartbeat of the Caribbean Sea behind it um, and it was my mother who gave me this love of the sea as well who taught me to read the sea like a poem and so Yes. When I was writing the book, I realized my mother actually molded me into the poet that I am today. You know, each step of the way, she gave me this love of the land that now enriches my my work and and feeds me as a writer in such a strong, intrinsic way.
0: Um, I recently interviewed the poet Major Jackson. Have you met him? hmm. Yes. Um, yeah. And I. He's I sh- wonderful. He is. Uh, and he has a new book out. Um, I shared your description of what writing a poem is like with him in the interview. And mm-hmm. I want to want to share this for our listeners. You say writing a poem is often like having the wind of some great power rush through you. I always find myself empowered, immortal on the other side, with verses of immortality. You know, that sounds um, physical in some ways and and beautifully unrestrained. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that how yes. it feels?
1: Um, absolutely. You know, it's funny because I said that. About poetry when I was 18 years old. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was this very, this grand idea of poetry. <laughs> um, but yes, poetry for me is very, very physical, also very spiritual. Recently somebody asked me, like, what is your spiritual practice now? And I was like, hmm, let me think about that. And actually I was like, oh, poetry is <laughs> poetry for me is as close as I come to prayer. It does feel, um, to me. Um, there's so much uncertainty and it's so much magic. Um, and when I sit down to write a poem, often I stand, I I walk around the room, I say the poem out loud over and over and over. I feel the lines moving through me, you know, Lorca has this idea that a poem a poem works from the root of your foot to the top of your head. It's supposed to move through you like a current. Mm-hmm. And so I believe this as well. And so when I'm writing a poem, it, 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 I embody it. it. does. I feel it moving through my body. And that's when I know a poem is working, when I do feel that it's imbued me with a kind of fever.
0: When you started writing poetry, did your father see your work as as I guess, an expression of an inner life that, you know, was beyond his reach, that he couldn't control,
1: um perhaps, you know, I've never asked him. so I can't I should not speak for what he believed my poetry was doing. But I think, um for him, a lot of the time, it was something he did not understand. And so if he did not understand what I was doing or what I was saying, Um, I think his impulse was then to reject it. Um, because, you know, a lot, I, a lot of my poems, the early poems were, you know, very fantastical and very like mythological and, um, thinking of myself in other places, other worlds, um, other versions of this girl. And so, um, yeah, I think I think quite simply he didn't he didn't get it.
0: <laughs> okay, then let me ask the question this way. When you started, you know, when you were developing into a poet as a young woman, did you see your work as an expression in some ways of this inner life that was beyond your father's control or his reach?
1: Absolutely. So for me, you know, I'd always grown up in my house, being told I have no opinions. I, sh- I-, I should have no opinions, right? Everything I believed, every view of the world should be my father's view. And, some, you know, a lot of the time I did not agree with his view of the world. As I got older, I disagreed with a lot of the, his views of the world and of women and of what my future should be or what my life should be like. And you know, I'd always grown up being told that my highest, a woman's highest virtue was her silence, and her obedience and her pliance. And I never agreed. But so being growing up and feeling kind of choked under that silence, poetry was the place where I felt I could cultivate a voice I could begin nurturing a self, you know, and that was a little bit rebellious, that it was a place that I could be myself in all its fullness, whoever she would be. And so for me, yes, poetry was always that space of survival and that place of self-making.
0: Your father, we haven't talked about this yet, but your father had a preoccupation with, I guess what I think of as a purity code um, for you and your sisters. Um, You know, again, there's a there's a real similarity to this with a with the purity movement that went through kind of fundamentalist Christian communities in the I think in the 90s. Um, How would you describe what your father believed about the fact that you know, the daughters in the household had to be pure.
1: Yes. So, you know, the Rastafari believe that their their body is a vessel for Jah and it must remain pure. Your mind must remain fortified against Babylon. So, you know, I think in some ways, particularly in how he, you know, his the diet and all of that is tied to this idea of purity as well. Mm-hmm. So he's like, we don't eat meat, we have to remain pure. People who eat, who eat meat are impure and so on. But there was also, um, I think, even a harsher idea of purity on women. A lot of Rasta brethren believe women were more susceptible to moral corruption because they menstruated. And so they believe that, um, again, coming back to this biblical idea of Eve, that mm. we were kind of yeah. born impure, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so yes there was always I felt this obsession ever since I was young um, about women there was a dichotomy of women women were either clean or unclean right and or pure or impure so you know my father would talk a lot about unclean women and about Jezebel's and not wanting his daughter to be Jezebel's and so in order to keep us pure that meant we you know, we couldn't, all the things I mentioned before, couldn't dress a certain way, couldn't, you know, have jewelry and so on. this was all of part of um, maintaining our purity and then keeping us away from the world, um, I think, was also intended to, I think, extend this idea of purity. So, you know, my, my siblings and I were were kept at home a lot, mm-hmm. particularly my sisters and I, when we were, when, as we got older, when we were teenagers, we were kind of forbidden from leaving the house a lot of the time. Um, I think the worry was that out there, outside of the gate, you know, we're all, all of the, the temptations of Babylon, all of the profane um, and tainted, hands of Babylon were outside the gate and so we were kinda of kept at home um, with the idea that we would maintain our purity yes um, and so growing up I, I really dreaded for a long time um, adolescence I didn't want to be unclean you know <laughs> I remember thinking when I was younger like what's wrong with me I don't wanna be unclean I wanna be clean I wanna be pure I didn't know that my fate was fixed. <laughs> hmm. You know, as as a woman, I was destined at some time to be unpure.
0: Sophia, I, I wonder if you... I mean, these are such deep, uh, deep impressionable ideas that you grew up with. And I wonder if you still... I know you live somewhere else, you're living your life now, you're writing, you're having all this success, but do you catch yourself slipping into, you know, when you're not guarding against it, this this kind of thinking or this philosophy, and then you have to pull yourself up a little bit?
1: Absolutely not. (laughs) No. Um, No. By the time I was nine, I... I rejected all of this, you know, this idea of purity or perfect daughter, or um because I saw the road diverging before me between me and my brother and I couldn't make sense of it. I said, well, this makes no sense. You know, my brother and I, we were always close. We grew up the same. We shared almost the same mind. And, at, at, you know, around nine, I began to see. Um, that what he was being groomed to become was different to me. And and I began in my mind to reject all of these tenets of Rastafari. And, um, you know, by the time I was 19 and I decided to cut my dreadlocks, I fully rejected all of it, that I knew I was always going to celebrate my womanhood instead of being diminished by it.
0: Um. Uh- would you read an excerpt and we should say um, that this is a time your father was invited to come to Japan to play music and he comes home and he finds the household somewhat changed <laughs> maybe while he's been gone. Um, is there anything else you want to say ahead of this excerpt?
1: I think it wasn't the household that changed. It was he who ah. changed I think that he went to Japan with big dreams and those dreams didn't quite manifest. And I think something soured in his personality after that for a very long time, things weren't always like this before. So, you know, my siblings and I, a lot, a lot of the time think of our lives before Japan and after he went to Japan.
0: Hmm.
1: I came to realize that what my father wanted on his return from Japan, was the perfect daughter, and when a Rasta man said daughter, he meant both his wife and his child, as my father called my mother his daughter when speaking to his Rasta brethren, who also called their partners their daughters. For the men of Rastafari, the perfect daughter was everything a woman was supposed to be. The perfect daughter was whittled from Jah's mighty oak cultivating her holy silence. She spoke only when spoken to. The perfect daughter was humble and had no care for vanity. She had no needs, yet nursed the needs of others, breastfeeding an army of Jah's mighty warriors. The perfect daughter sat under the apple shade and waited to be called, her mind empty and emptying. She followed no God but her father, until he was replaced with her husband. The perfect daughter was nothing but a vessel for the man's seed, unblemished clay waiting for Ja's fingerprint. You're old enough now to help out in the kitchen, my father told me, making quick work of whittling me, that I need to learn from your mother. Watch how she carries herself. I watched my mother and found in her long silences Something potent waiting to be said, like the anxious moment before thunder. But no matter how much I longed for it, she never thundered. She never spoke her mind or disagreed with my father. She smoked and breastfed Shari. She smoked and spared me from the tedium of kitchen work. She smoked and woke up before dawn to cook all our meals and hand wash our clothes, folding them away afterward, like her thoughts, in the back of the chest of drawers, untouched. She was the perfect daughter. Perhaps it was true what my father said, that I lacked discipline, the way any nine-year-old lacks discipline. I didn't always listen, I was skeptical, I doubted his gospel, I was curious, I touched the flame simply because it was burning, because discipline always seemed to me the pin that held the butterfly in the display case. Work maketh the man. Day after day I swung over those words and saw ahead of me a life withering slowly under all his multiplying decrees. Day after day my heart bucked up against it. I was never going to be the perfect daughter. A grin of mischief opened ever so slyly inside of me. A seedling of a voice that said
0: no. Sophia Sinclair reading from her new memoir, How to Say Babylon. Um, you just alluded to the day that you decided to, I guess you declared your independence and decided to cut your dreadlocks. Will you just explain what led yes. up to the decision? I mean, it was a long
1: time coming. I never felt that I never felt comfortable in my dreadlocks. You know, I would always um, when I went to school, my siblings and I were always oddities growing up in Jamaica because we had dreadlocks again because the Rastafari are actually a minority in Jamaica, right? So my siblings and I were the only Rastafari children at school, the only Rastafari children on the bus, at the beach, we were the only. Um And I had a friend when I was around 10 years old in primary school. Well, I thought she was my friend. And she, she said, I don't want to be a friend. I don't want to be friends with a Rasta. And so, you know, this kind of, burden that I was carrying and my siblings were carrying because we had dreadlocks. You know, we carried it throughout our entire lives. My teachers treated me differently. They treated me very badly because I had dreadlocks. Um, my brother, when he got to school, he got to law school. Um, his His professors said he had to cut his dreadlocks to continue studying law, he refused and he left law school. You know, my sisters and I, we walk in the street, we were taunted, called after, um, you know, teased. And so I wore the dreadlocks like a burden because they were, and also because they were the thing that kept me tethered to my father. It was the thing that to him still represented his control, that he still had his house under control, that he still had some control over me and over us when we still had our dreadlocks. Because multiple times I'd asked, I asked at 12, can I cut my dreadlocks? Nope, 13, 14 and so on. I asked every time, can I? And so, um, you know, it felt that it was this part of me that did not belong to me. I felt so alien in my own body. Mm -hmm. And so when I was 19, I, I decided I couldn't do it anymore. And I said to my mother, can I cut my dreadlocks? And for the first time after, you know, after her saying no, like, you know, it's gonna be fire and brimstone from your father. If we do, you can't do it. Finally, at 19, something had shifted. I was so I think I was losing myself under a kind of depression, I was drowning in it. And my mother saw that happening. And she said, I'm not losing my daughter. And she said, I will do it for you. And she called a friend over and, and they and they, they caught my dreadlocks when I was 19. Um, and my father came home and he saw me. He was furious. He looked right through me like a ghost. I was not there. I didn't exist to him. He didn't speak to me for almost an entire year. We lived together in the same house. But I had vanished from his mind because I had become Babylon. But I told myself before I did it and even seeing in the face of his fury I told myself it was worth it. Whatever came next was worth it because finally I was gonna be free to choose the future that I wanted for myself and to choose who I would be next. I would get to choose. What would happen next?
0: Uh, I had a conversation recently with um, Viet Thanh Nguyen, who also has a, a new memoir out. And he said in the course of the conversation that writing a memoir is inevitably a betrayal. Does this feel like mm-hmm. a betrayal in some ways? No. <laughs> it doesn't. Why? Um, well...
1: I wonder why he, he feels that way. I mean, for me, I, um, first of all, I didn't, I didn't want to write the memoir from a place where it felt like, um, oh, I was writing it for, you know, to, to get back at someone or I was writing it from a place of vengeance or a place of, of hurt or pain. So I knew I wanted to write the memoir in a way that in all its complexities and its nuances that when you got to the last page, you would see the love that I have for all of my family, even my father and um, that in many ways, it's a tribute to my family and how much I care for them, that I could put as much care as I could in the representation of our lives and um, the way that I, you know, um, represented them on the page. Um, so no, I, I don't feel like it was a betrayal. I think it was a story, it, the story is mine and it was mine to tell. But I wanted to make sure that how I told it was um, in a way that I was reaching toward hope in the writing of the book, a hope that there would be change yet to come, you know, that no matter what had happened in the past, all of the pain, all of the hurt, all of the trauma. Um, But that in writing it, I could kind of change the cycle of my family and the future that was to come. And that any girl that's yet to come in my family would never have to go through the things that my sisters and I went through.
0: I I think what he meant, and I think what he meant is very complicated, as you've alluded to. But one of the things I think he was referring to is... You are inevitably telling secrets and you are putting Mm -hmm. as the memoirist your own interpretation on the truth and identity of a family. And that is only your own perception, right, as the memoirist. And so it is inevitably a loving betrayal. (laughs) I think that's what he meant. Does that make sense?
1: (laughs) Um, Well, Sure, but I um, resolutely don't see it like that for mm-hmm. myself. I will say that I invited my family in while I was writing the memoir. A lot of the memories in here are interwoven with theirs. It wasn't just my authoritarian, this is how I remember it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I always ask my siblings, how do you remember it? Or do you remember this place? Or when did we live here? Or when did we live there? Or, you know, I I... I recorded interviews with my parents long interviews with my father about his own childhood, his own life, why he chose Rastafari. I gave him a chance to tell his own story upcoming to Rastafari. I didn't have to do that. Um, and I would ask my brother and my father, well, how would you you know, I want to make sure I get the Rasta vernacular, right? How would you spell this thing? Or how do you say this thing? Or how would you define this? I wanted them very much to feel invited in as much as possible Um, in the writing of the book. So that the the memory itself, the memories themselves would be a collective effort of all of our oral histories together, even though I'm writing it from my point of view. Um, So no, I don't see it as a betrayal. I think, you know, in Jamaica and in many, in many families, um, diasporic families, we have this idea of like, yes, you shouldn't talk about your family secrets and so on. Um, But I think that's how a lot of women and other people continue to be repressed because we uphold these ideas that we shouldn't speak about them, we should kind of let them linger on and and continue in silence. I don't agree with that. Um, And I wanted in the writing of the book, as I said, to change to change that and to change the shape of my family in the future. That when my niece comes and I have another niece coming next week, that when they're born, when they walk in the world, that they would never have to feel like they have to be silent for any reason for anybody ever. And speaking your truth would never be a betrayal of your family.
0: Sophia Sinclair's memoir is titled, How to Say Babylon. Thank you so much for the conversation.
1: Thank you.